welcome back to The Stack. This week we speak with Dr. Jonathan Paprocki, affectionately known as Poprox, who works on urban infrastructure at Talon, developing the kernel in post-quantum security. Dr. Paprocki discusses quantum computing and security, as well as modeling ways urbit fits not just hierarchical, but potentially other forms of networking governance. To wit, communistic or even anarchic. Let's listen. Well, first we should make sure nothing's on fire. <laughs> <laughs> yes, uh, nothing seems to be on fire this time. Uh, yeah, last time I was at my girlfriend's place and I was the only one home at the at that moment and uh, neighbor's house across the street just caught on fire just right as we started recording. So uh, I <laughs> had to run outside and uh, make sure that it was fine there. Like, thankfully the whole house didn't burn down, fire trucks showed up and I don't know the neighbors. I think it's not my place, so I don't know exactly what happened. But um, but yeah, they they seem to still be there. So I you know it's must not have been uh, uh, you know absolutely devastating. <laughs> Probably arson. Because uh, you, mm-hmm. you're um, we can edit this out if you don't want it. But you're in Atlanta. Um, do you remember when the connect? Oh, what was it? it? Was fifteen or whatever the bridge? like burned down yes yeah i remember that uh yeah and and it's totally i i don't care about anonymity too much so you know it's fine to include that i'm from atlanta um but yeah yeah i remember yeah when the uh the bridge burned down because of some government function was storing a bunch of like flammable shit underneath the bridge for some reason whatever yeah yeah and then they blamed it on like you know some like homeless drug addict but you know it's really probably the fault of the whoever decided to store shit down there to begin with but um yeah i used to uh, i used to do that when i was in college so that was probably me actually (laughs) what store store explosives under bridges well (laughs) yeah i mean it was it was extra credit but um (laughs) <laughs> I I used to I used to work for the uh, Department of Transportation there in Atlanta, but I was a I was uh, yeah I was doing I, I did survey work when I was in college. They used to the, uh, the only go ahead. No, sorry, I was just going to say that people get really infuriated at survey people that you you have uh I, I mean it has nothing to do with you, but you go around you know with your surveying equipment having to tear up little pieces of people's yard so that you can get the the geolocation pin, uh, mm-hmm. and and e- people people know that what you're there for is because they're going to widen somebody's uh, somebody's lane into like an a, an eight lane highway, and so uh. <laughs> you become like the the subject of their ire over the fact that their property value is about to plummet. Yes, it's definitely your fault, the surveyor specifically. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> There were two. So the the only car explosion I've ever seen in person was in Atlanta. Um, <laughs> I was I was in walking away with a gas can. <laughs> yeah, right. So I did it. No, I I was like um, somewhere like downtown and uh, like looking down on the street and there's like all of these police cars and fire engines around this car that is smoking. I'm like, why aren't they going up to put it out? And then there's just like this like flash and pop and it's nothing like the movies, but I guess like they were waiting for the fire to hit the gas can uh, or the gas tank. Um, and, and it did. And then they went and dealt with it. But then I learned like the story 
was a guy in a like uh, high speed chase with the Atlanta Police Department had like crashed the car into this building, and then he got out on foot and ran away. Um, and then like many year, uh, uh, rather like um, then he like came back. Like, he had gotten away and was, like, gone for, like, hours. And then, like, he couldn't help himself. And he came back to the scene. And so they arrested him. <laughs> like, he had actually pulled a successful Grand Theft Auto getaway um, and just didn't make it. But the crazy thing was, is, like, you like there was no way to find out what had actually happened, like, from the news or anything. Like, and there's no local news even to speak of anymore um and so like i just had to like piece that together from the internet painstakingly um even though it's a pretty interesting story but anyways um that's that's my traffic in atlanta story (laughs) yeah i've seen i've seen a couple of burning couches and one burning mattress in atlanta and uh yeah, it's, uh, you know, I don't think it's generally, you know, quite as, like, fiery and chaotic as, you know, we might be uh, expressing right now. But, uh, but yeah, certainly, you know, I think it is a, a time-honored way to, you know, get rid of that unwanted couch, at least. Uh, actually, yeah. I've seen many burning couches, but that's because, specifically, I was in, like, a fraternity in college. And, and you know, alumni would just always donate couches, and we would destroy them over time, and then uh, they uh, would we just burned them in back once we had too many and <laughs> running out of room. So regular. But now you're a productive, <laughs> now you're a productive member of society. You have a PhD in <laughs> quantum math. Uh, <laughs> that, that, that is close enough. Uh, what, what I say my PhD in just kind of generally depends on who I'm talking to and what I'm trying to convey, uh, <laughs> which, you know, um, but yeah, so I did both my undergrad and PhD at Georgia Tech, which is in Atlanta for anybody who doesn't know that's listening. Um, I, uh, did my undergrad both in mathematics and physics, uh, like two bachelor's degrees. And then I started my PhD at UCLA, uh, in Los Angeles. And then I really disliked Los Angeles. Like the, like the, 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 the school was great. Um, but living in Los Angeles on a grad student stipend is terrible. And, uh, most of the other students there made up for it by like tutoring Beverly Hills kids. Um, and I was just too much of a lazy asshole to do that. And I didn't want to, I don't know, I just didn't like tutoring in general, I guess. But, uh, so yeah, I came back, finished my PhD at Georgia Tech uh, in math and, um, uh, yeah, depending on, like I said, depending on who I'm talking to or what I, you know, uh, I would say the broadest theme that it was on is this, uh, kind of esoteric sounding topic called quantum topology, which emerged from physics. And I can get into that later if we, if we really want to, but, um, it's, uh, but it's has applications towards a particular, um, architecture of quantum computer that doesn't exist yet called a topological quantum computer and microsoft uh is the only company currently trying to build one and um uh but yeah they they don't they don't exist yet they might not for several years they might never exist so it uh it might just but it it, it, even if that's the case it has applications outside of quantum computing this uh this general topic of quantum topology and there's been uh uh 
I don't know. I, I could describe it in draw, broad strokes if you want, but uh, um, not sure exactly well, this is, this what you want to get stuff. into. This 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 is the stuff that means that none of our passwords will matter in the future because a computer will just crack it in one second. Uh, potentially. Um, so the yeah. So there's a you know coming cryptography apocalypse. Uh, that's I would say at minimum probably ten years away or twenty thirty. We'll say uh, uh, potentially sooner if some events happen that I'll get into in a moment, but, um, but also potentially, you know, as late as 2040 or even 2050, it's, it's, uh, it's really hard to say just because, you know, it d- just depends on the development of quantum computers to happen at a certain rate. So, uh, basically, yeah, quantum computers will end up, uh, being able to break s- most of the popular forms of encryption that are used across the internet, like RSA and, uh, elliptic curve, uh, encryption and, uh, but, you know, which like electric curve is what we use in orbit uh, for uh, like communication via AIMS. So, for example, AIMS will be at risk uh, to to quantum computer attacks and uh, as will the Ethereum blockchain um, to some extent, like, you know, the private keys will be at risk. But like rearranging the blockchain itself will not be so much. Um, and I can zoom in on any of these things in further detail if you want. I'm just trying you know, to paint the broad picture right now sure but, uh, I, I think you but, sorry i think you you actually uh put for i mean for instance in the dev list you've talked about you've talked about uh some ideas for dealing with a quantum apocalypse um for aims right yeah so um the uh so i guess let me back up a bit to you know why i took uh, the job working at Tlon. so i finished my phd in 2019 and didn't want to leave Atlanta. There weren't really any quantum computing jobs in Atlanta that I was uh, necessarily qualified for uh, in the sense that they require security clearance. And I've uh, had a, I'll just say... uh, An interesting life. Yeah, an interesting life, bohemian (laughs) lifestyle, let's say. uh, It would not allow me to get security clearance. Um, so, So, yeah, I had to find another job. And I thought, I hadn't really heard of Urbit um at that point to i mean i he- had heard of it but i didn't know much about it uh, but eventually you know the reason i got in uh and and the reason i stayed interested in urban is because i thought okay well this seems like you know a project that i could eventually work on like post-quantum cryptography for and uh and that's what i'll what i'm starting to like study in, in only recently but uh anyways yeah with aims the, the, the so the problem the reason that we have to start caring about this now is because you could have somebody that is just collecting packets sent over AIMS, for instance, and uh, just sitting on them. And they can sit on them for, you know, the next 10 or 20 years. And then once quantum computers are, are powerful enough, they can, because AIMS is currently encrypted using uh, this uh, Diffie-Hellman elliptic curve cryptography, that means that a quantum computer would may, will probably be able to break it in 10 to 20 years. And so that means that anything that needs to be secret in 10 to 20 years already needs to be encrypted uh, using these methods. And if it's not, then, um, and if someone is collecting it, then they could, they could uh, uh, crack it. Um, so it's, it's, yeah. So. Secret family recipes on, <laughs> uh, let me just put it that way. Uh, sorry, go ahead. Yeah, yeah. So this is why it's, you know, it seems like 
way thinking way too far ahead of time, but it's actually. Uh, you know, some data is that sensitive. It will still be sensitive in ten. So you're saying it's, it's it's already too it's already too late for the packets that have been sent. In 20 years, somebody's gonna kind of crack open my, let's call it aunt's cookie recipe. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. That pretty much. Um, you know, assuming someone is is collecting all the data, which you know you should probably assume like the NSA is. They they try to right. collect as much data as possible, and they are you know uh, probably going to be one of the first organizations to start applying quantum computers to break that. But on the other hand, we're also talking about um, this, uh, you know, it, once that, once we do reach that point, you know, whenever it happens, uh, it will still be, you know, an extraordinarily expensive and uh, time consuming operation to, to crack that sort of uh, uh, cryptography. So it's like, unless you are, you're not you're not going to be worrying about like script kitties like getting their hands on like you know a cloud quantum computer just breaking everything. It's uh, really it's more like at that point it's still just like you know nation state level actors that uh, and people who are targeted by them who need to worry about it. But you know uh, it's still Urbit is supposed to be you know the hundred year computer or thousand year computer. I don't remember which one it is, but uh, and, and so that means you know we have to be thinking in terms of these long term ideas and that. It is, I think, not unreasonable at all to think that in 50 years, for example, that uh, cracking this encryption could be accessible to an ordinary pu- human just, uh, you know, using like cloud quantum computing stuff. That, you know, they pay pay a few dollars and can probably destroy it. So, so really, you know, everything has to move over to these post-quantum encryption schemes sooner or later. And it's essentially because of this, you know, uh, problem of just sitting on top of packets uh, thing that it really has to... The sooner it is done, the better. Um, and Where, so, like, if we if we look at just, I mean, like the history of conventional computing, like um, Difference Engine to ENIAC to IBM mainframes to the PC, like where where are we then? I mean, it, it's it's just purely theoretical, or are we are we close to that kind of state actor having uh, something? That that that's that's a yeah a good uh, analogy to lean on here to you know that I often use to express where the development of quantum computing is. So I would say the stage we're at right now is approximately equivalent to when um, vacuum tubes were still the primary you know thing. Transistors have not been invented yet uh, in in terms of like quantum computing in the sense that there's not a good way to like scale things up extremely rapidly. Uh, using you know some very simple process, uh, the what I would claim is the equivalent of the yeah so topological quantum computers. Um, so the the reason that I call them essentially the equivalent of uh, or so, so something analogous to the invention of the transistor as as opposed to like vacuum tubes with digital computers is uh, based off of how much quick, more quickly uh, we will be able to scale uh, once topological qubits are invented, if they are actually possible, because so far no one has made one yet, so they might not be possible. Um, and ba- basically, large. so right now, the area of quantum computers that uh, we are in that is, it is currently called is often the, uh, uh, the NISC era, which, um, what does that actually stand for? NISC quantum computing. Um, it's near 
something. Uh, noisy intermediate scale quantum technology. So basically, uh, one of the biggest uh, problems that faces quantum computers in general or qubits is that it's extremely difficult to for a qubit to maintain the information that's stored in it over time. Meaning that like any type of outside interference from the environment, like you know uh, just fluctuations in temperature. Um, of like you know, at the millikelvin level, so just absolutely tiny fluctuations or like cosmic rays or vibrations and so on. These could all destroy the information stored in a qubit. And so a huge amount of the uh, effort that's going into developing quantum computers is this uh, is error correction, which is to say that, you know, uh, when an error is introduced from whatever source, you know, thermodynamics or... Uh, what have you, then you want to be able to correct for that error. And so the same sort of thing uh, happens, for example, with like hard drives. Uh, you know, you have, you know, bits can flip, for example, um, and you want to have like, you know, sometimes an error correction. This is what like, like RAID drives do. Um, and, uh, and so there's a similar problem with quantum computers, but the issue with uh, one of the issues that you run into is that correcting for errors with a single qubit uh, actually can require to, to the, to, to get it to the degree, to get a qubit to the level of fidelity that it needs to be able to do things like, uh, factor composite numbers into its prime factors, which is, you know, one of the, you know, basic elements on which, uh, quantum computers can break encryption with, uh, is, uh, essentially requires several thousand, uh, physical qubits for every logical qubit. So this is a, you know, huge amount of additional, like, you know, stuff you need to do a, to do a single, uh, computation for a single qubit. So like right now, the largest, like, universal quantum computers being built by like Google and IBM and Intel and so on have, you know, somewhere around a hundred qubits or less. And so we aren't even at the level of having a single logical qubit that's error corrected to the level that would be necessary to do this encryption breaking thing. However, uh, the predicted long-term error correction strategy that'll be utilized uh, with these sorts of architectures is something called a surface code. And a surface code is basically a way to error correct that essentially simulates a type of topological qubit. Um, and I can, go into a bit more what a topological qubit is. I just want to talk, uh, you know, at a higher level at the moment. Um, but basically the, the idea is that all these quantum computers right now that they're building, like in, in several years, you know, once we're at the, you know, thousands of qubits level, what they'll be doing is they'll be organizing these qubits into these uh, sort of uh, uh, topologies where you would have like maybe a bunch of qubits like on a lattice and like the lattice is joined uh, in such a way with itself that it forms like a donut, for example. Just imagine like a donut and have a grid on the donut of square grid and then like at each uh, intersection point on that grid, you know, place a qubit. And this will basically be uh, an example of a configuration of qubits that could act as a uh, logically as like a topological qubit. And this and basically these topological qubits have very, very powerful error correction properties there. They, they correct for errors at like the physical level in the sense that you don't have to do some additional layer of cert of software on top of it that um, uh, that says, okay, we're going to figure out what the error is. And then the software is going to like figure out what do I have to do to all these other qubits to correct for the error. Um, you know, instead the error is corrected for at the physical level with topological qubits. And that's what they're trying to simulate with these surface codes. Uh, and an analogous thing going back to like, you know, hard disks, uh, hard drives is, you know, a, a, a sector on a hard disk that stores a bit 
is you know a uh, a bunch of uh, um, atoms, you know, magnetized atoms that can you know say spin up or down. And if the, collectively all the atoms are spinning up, then that could be a one. After all spinning down, that would be a zero. And if say like a cosmic ray comes in and flips a few of the atoms in there, uh, you know, that kind of puts it into a indeterminate state you know it's like that not the entire sector is spinning up or spinning down now you have a few spinning in the, in the wrong direction so it's not really a zero or one anymore um but because of how magnetism works uh when you just have like one atom spinning up in around a sea of atoms that are spinning down the ones that are spinning down will pull the one that's spinning up and make it spin down again so the error is actually corrected for at the physical level there's nothing uh, the computer doesn't come in and see, oh no, this sector is, you know, not quite a one or a zero. Instead, it's actually the physics of magnetism that corrects for that error. And the same sort of thing ends up working with these topological qubits is that the physics corrects the way that the physics works for these sort of things corrects for the errors. And, um, that's what is predicted to be what these, uh, like sort of superconducting architectures or ion trap or neutral atom and so on that like, uh, Intel and, uh, Google and the others are making, uh, you know, they will eventually be trying to simulate this topological qubit idea, um, but they aren't making it directly. And then Microsoft is the only company that's trying to make a topological qubit, um, which is just a much more difficult task. And they've been working on it since like the mid 2000s and they still haven't done it. And, you know, there's lots of labs trying to do it. It's uh, and still not sure whether or not it's uh, going to succeed. But and is it is it mostly a material science problem or what? Because uh, yes. I'm hearing lots of different disciplines here, yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah. So it is uh, a variety of different problems, yeah, including a material science one. So the uh, there's two main approaches to topological quantum computers. Um, one is this via this. Uh, well, both of them depend on this idea called a topological quantum field theory, which I can explain in uh, a little bit of detail in a moment, but I'll say like what these two approaches are is one is based off of a type of particle called a Majorana fermion and that, uh, and they live on these things called uh, nanowires. And it's an idea about like manipulating uh, nanowires are just a very, very thin wire, like, you know, a few atoms thick. Uh, I don't really know how many atoms exactly, but just much thinner than an ordinary atom or ordinary wire. And then there's another approach uh, based off of something called the quantum Hall effect, uh, which is essentially you have a two-dimensional flat sheet of some of some sort of material. Uh, gallium arsenide is is commonly used, but you can use some other ones. And then you uh, bring it down very close to absolute zero uh, in terms of temperature, and you have subjected to a very very powerful perpendicular magnetic field, and you then uh, put a electrical current. Uh, across it, and that creates uh, a uh, particular uh, type of physics called a topological uh, quantum field theory uh, that, that is used to describe what the physics that occurs here. Um, and uh, so I'll, the, the Majorana fermion one uh, with the nanowires is the more physically realistic one, or one that, at least that we're closer to accomplishing, um, but it's also the more complicated story. So I'm actually going to describe the simpler one based off of this thing called the quantum hall effect. Um, even though that one is uh, farther away from being physically realized. Uh, but um, but the idea of how that one works will explain a bit about how the Majorana Fermion one works. So with the uh, quantum hall effect, what you have essentially uh, in condensed matter physics, which is 
any type of physics that's about um, things like solids, uh, liquids, glasses, uh, basically stuff that happens inside of these phenomena is generally called condensed matter. And you and condensed matter is generally concerned about quantum phenomena at this level. Uh, you get these. There's this notion of something called uh, quasi particles, which are sort of like things that act like particles inside of these systems, but aren't actually them. Uh, the one that is probably most widely uh, known are these things called holes. Uh, are you guys familiar with holes? Okay. Uh, so, uh, so if you have a um, conductor, like just say, you know, a piece of metal uh, and an electron, you know, is living at its surface and you like knock it out somehow. And now there's like an absence of an electron and uh, let's just say, actually, let's just consider a wire here. So like a one-dimensional wire, you knock an electron out of it. So now there's like a gap and it's where an electron used to be. And you might want to think about, okay, uh, well, what happens to this gap? What does this missing electron do? And you, this, this missing electron is called a hole. And basically, you know, you could think of it as like, okay, I want to talk about how this, how this hole moves around by thinking like, okay, one electron moves from the right to the left. And then that, that means the hole moves from left to right. And then the next electron moves over right to left. And then that means the hole moves left to right and so on. And so you could, you could describe the movement of this gap by just saying this electron moves, then this electron moves, then this electron moves and so forth. Uh, but that's mathematically complicated. So a simpler way to do it is just say, okay, this hole, this absence of an electron is moving left to right. Um, or something like that. So, so this absence of an electron itself actually sort of behaves like a particle. And so it's called a quasi-particle. And um, so this idea of quasi-particles is very powerful. Um, another example that commonly arises is something called like a phonon, which is sort of like a quanta of vibration. So it's like when you like hit a surface or something and make a noise, a thud or whatever, uh, you know, you have vibrations going through the surface. Uh, like at the quantum level, you can actually think about this as like... Uh, particle or these quasi particles called phonons which you know basically when they hit like you know a given atom in like you know your crystal or whatever you're hitting uh it makes it vibrate but then you know once it vibrates then it moves to the next one it makes it vibrate then it moves to the next one it makes it vibrate and you know that's the propagation of sound so the propagation of like sound is represented by this movement of like phonons inside of it so um or propagation of vibration you know which sound is a form of um so uh in so this story has been developed uh, very extensively over, I don't even remember when the first uh, quasi-particle was thought of. I don't know, probably in like the early 1900s was when holes were came up with, but I don't know for sure. Um, and so now there's a giant zoo of them. And these are not fundamental particles. They are, uh, you know, just basically collective behaviors of systems that behave in a particle-like fashion, in the sense that you can use the same equations that you use to describe the behavior of particles to describe, uh, you know, the movement and dynamics of these sorts of things. So, um, in the uh, quantum, in a quantum Hall effect system, you get a uh, quasi-particles that surprisingly, uh, if you've never heard of this stuff before, act like essentially like fractions of an electron. So you, you, you've learned before, you know, electrons are indivisible. You know, they have a charge of minus E and there's no way to like break that into anything smaller than that. Like that's all you get. It's like that is the smallest unit of charge is the charge of an electron, right? And uh, that's a little bit of a lie. Um, so as it turns out, you can have quasi-particles 
that have a fraction of an electron charge, like you know e over three rather than 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 a full electron charge. Uh, were you going to say something, Andy? No, I, I was just going to express my disappointment that one of the few things I remembered from college chemistry is a lie. <laughs> yeah, well, it's uh, not entirely a lie. It's just it's just collective behavior of uh, um, lots of part lots of electrons acting together is what it is. It's actually a lot of like entangled electrons that are like collectively behaving like there is a particle inside of it that has a like fraction of electron charge. Like it's uh so it is it's still it's still not a lie, but it's just uh when you get into these systems where you have things that are essentially effectively true, which means like, you know, up to like some like level of detail that this is what is true. Like if you really, really get into the nitty gritty details, then there's no, there's not actually a particle with fractional charge. But uh, but basically, if you just zoom out just a little bit and ignore a little bit of the, the, the small details, then then that's the simplest description is to describe dynamics in terms of that. Um, so anyways, uh, so there's several different types of quasi-particles that are like this that can show up in these quantum Hall effect systems. And what you should think of this is that these are particles that, again, they're living on like a two-dimensional sheet. Uh, so this is they're trapped in two dimensions. They are not moving around in three dimensions. Um, they're trapped in this two-dimensional sheet. And what you should imagine that you're doing with them is you're braiding them around each other over time. So you're like moving them around and like say, you know, you swap the first one with the second one, you swap the second one with the third one, and so on. And if you like draw this picture like in space-time, so you know, you have your two-dimensional sheet frozen at a moment in time, you have some particles on it, and then you start evolving that two-dimensional sheet through time. So you imagine how uh, the locations of the particles varies over time by, you know, by just stretching that sheet in the third dimension and say that third dimension is time. And you imagine the, the paths of the particles, maybe you imagine them like a little boat sailing around. Uh, and this uh, motion of these like boats on uh, this like, uh, you know, two dimensional sheet is actually what the process of quantum computation is done in this system. And basically the state of a qubit in this system is not actually the state of an individual quasi-particle here, but it's actually going to be like the collective state of say, you know, we'll just say three of them. Uh, depends on which specific, like that actually depends on the strength of your magnetic field here, but um, we'll just say three. And so you can have like, a, you have a collection of three quasi-particles and uh, you're saying that's one of my qubits, another collection of three of them, that's another one, uh, another qubit, and then you start like, you know, sailing them around each other like boats and stuff. And this action of moving them around each other is somehow uh, changing the internal state of these collections of particles in such a way that performs quantum computation. So I think, um, I mean, obviously, uh, this is very complex. But, you know, if I can boil it down as a layman, I'm just hearing incredibly uh, powerful privacy destroying technology. So <laughs> like what, what, what's good about this? Uh, so yeah, so I, to be honest, I did not study a whole lot about how quantum computers break cryptography in grad school. I was entirely focused on the, uh, which, you know, to me has always just seemed like that's just like moving the goalposts and stuff. It's like, I don't think it's actually terribly 
interesting by itself in the sense in like an academic sense um because it's just like okay we're, we did this one thing before now we're going to do the new thing but uh so quantum computers are actually uh very useful for a handful of problems that we know about uh that are completely unrelated to cryptography um the thing that i think personally i think will have the largest impact on human society in general is uh in material science and chemistry so uh, if you think about, you know, material science, at least, you know, at the level of material science where like quantum effects matter and uh, chemistry, which essentially is applied quantum mechanics. Um, uh, when, when you're doing a chemistry experiment, you're basically doing, you know, some very large scale applied quantum mechanics experiment. And the language that nature speaks there is quantum mechanics. And so when you want to like simulate... Uh, so, so there, there's, there's a, one of the big subfields of chemistry is computational chemistry, where you try to like simulate what's going to happen when you know you create you know certain molecules and put them in this in with this catalyst, and you know uh, do that sort of thing. Um, uh, and this uh, computational chemistry stuff is requires ginormous supercomputer power. Uh, you know, like they have those big ass government computers, like at you know the national labs with like tera uh, terahertz. Um, level uh, this processing. Is, this is like what they've done with RNA and the uh, these vaccines and everything. Uh, I don't know. I, that is outside of uh, okay. my yeah. my knowledge. But um, but basically, the uh, the point I'm getting at is that like even with these supercomputers, just simulating a single molecule jiggling for like a millisecond just could require like days worth of like you know extremely expensive supercomputer time. Um, and that's because our digital computers do not natively speak like quantum mechanics. They're simulating it, um, and that just creates a huge mismatch in the sort of like, you know, type of resources you're using to simulate the thing versus the thing you're actually simulating. So quantum computers are speaking quantum mechanics natively. Uh, so that means that it is actually very easy to simulate quantum systems on a quantum computer. Uh, you know, for example, you can go on to IBM's, um, IBM has like a free cloud quantum computer service you can access with just, you know, we add access to like one of their five qubit quantum computers, for example, and you can use that to like simulate the like, uh, energy spectrum of like the hydrogen atom. So, you know, one proton, one at one, one electron, and you want to figure out like what are, what, uh, uh, what happens when you jiggle it with you know a bit of energy what happens when you shoot a small photon at it or low energy photon at it and you can simulate that at like the quantum level there and um so what this could mean and you know this uh there's a few companies working on this uh i i don't follow this closely enough to know any of their names at the top of my head but um like that because quantum computers speak uh the same language that chemistry does um, that means that you are, uh, that th systems that you simulate with a quantum computer are essentially as good as running the actual experiment itself. And it can be run at a similar time frame or even much faster. So you could imagine that it might be in 10 years or so that a quantum computer could run the equivalent of, you know, a hundred years of chemistry experiments in a day. And uh, because it is not just like a, you know, lossy simulation of some kind, but like an actual direct, uh, you know, usage of, of the same uh, sort of 
language that nature speaks to to simulate this, that you actually, this is all pretty much as good as actually running the experiments in a lab. Um, so the hope, uh, which remains to be seen, uh, is that quantum computers will, will be very useful for things like drug design and material design, and that you'll be able to do things like put your, uh, you know, genome into a quantum computer and be like, uh, this is, you know, the protein that uh, is... Uh, not being expressed correctly because of you know these this th- these um, these genes and so on, and you might be able to just uh, come up with uh, from there using simulations relatively quickly a particular molecule that will work with your particular genome. Um, and this is something that like I have only you know like uh, read about, and you know the very broad. Uh, strokes of it make sense. Like you can definitely simulate chemistry. You can definitely simulate drugs. You can definitely simulate, you know, what happens when you put, you know, two baths of the molecules together, but I don't want to actually understand anything about drug design. So that might be, you know, just hype. Um, but, um, but the general idea that it should, uh, greatly accelerate the rate of research in material science and chemistry is, uh, probably going to be true on some level. And I think that's, uh, the thing, the, 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 that, that I think is like one of the main killer apps for quantum computing. Um, and why it's, uh, you know, could be worthwhile the, uh, the cryptography apocalypse that it creates. Yeah. The, um, so, so it's more than just binary logic run faster. Um, so, so yeah, uh, the, what, what, one way you can think about quantum computers is they kind of satisfy something that I like to call Moore's law on crack. Uh, the, basically the, uh, so a single qubit can represent, you know, either one or a zero, uh, two qubits can represent, um, zero, zero, uh, zero, one, one, zero, and one, one, like all four of them at the same time to some degree. Uh, if you had three qubits, you actually get eight states, zero, 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 one, and so on up to one, one, one. Um, and so what you actually get is every additional qubit you add to a quantum computer, doubles the amount of bits that it can represent and process at once. So we're saying, so that means, so instead of, you know, with Moore's law, it's like, okay, every, you know, 18 months, the number of, uh, you know, the computational power of a computer doubles. Um, uh, with quantum computers, it's like every additional qubit you add in some sense doubles its computational power. Uh, however, this comes with the caveat that uh, you can only ever read as many bits out of your computation as you have qubits. So you might have, uh, you know, say a thousand, a thousand, uh, qubits. That means you have two to the one thousandth power, uh, bits of information you can like, uh, compute with simultaneously, which is absolutely enormous. Um, however, you can only extract a thousand of those bits from it. So it's, uh, it's a, like kind of a deal with the devil that you can't, uh, you can, you get all this power, but you can't actually, you can only read like the tiniest fraction of it. So whatever problem that you hand to it, you have to somehow have a way to get the information that you want from this very, very tiny subset of the, of the computation. Um, and basically the reason for that is like every time you measure one of your qubits, uh, you know, it comes out as a zero or one. Um, but then that destroys the rest of the computation. So it's like you, you measure all the qubits, you know, all thousand of them, you get a thousand bits out of it, but now your computation's done. So all the two to the 1,000th power bits that you were, you know, manipulating before, you know, all the rest of it's gone. So the next thing, uh, that we're going to talk about, I think is your, um, paper 
that you had with uh, your your co-author. I, I don't actually know her, but uh, her name is Aurora Abolito. So you, you uh, are... yes. sorry, go ahead. Um, yeah, so yeah, that's her uh, a pseudonym that she uses for ah. uh, specific work. Like her her uh, her actual name, like her pseudonym is not like a secret. So I'm not revealing anything. Her, her actual name is uh, Matilda Marpoli. Um, she is a uh, professor at uh, a math professor at uh, Caltech. Um, and she was my original PhD advisor, uh, and I worked with her a bit as an undergrad as well. Um, and uh, and we haven't really worked together since then, but. Um, yeah, she. Yeah, her and I started writing a paper uh, last month about Urbit. Um, and she, so her background is uh, very, very wide. She is uh, quite an amazing scholar. She's written papers uh, largely. She's written about papers about topological quantum computing, uh, cosmology, linguistics, uh, algebraic geometry, um, uh, thermodynamics. Statistical mechanics, uh, just all over the place. She has, uh, you know, very wide uh, range of expertise. Um, and uh, and we started writing a paper together about Urbit. Uh, and it's sort of has a political bent to it, but I don't really want to, like, I don't it's like we call the paper. Uh, um, the current working title is "Cybernetic Communism: World Building." And, you know, the word communism can give uh, a lot of people the wrong impression of think about it right off the bat. Like, I don't think it's necessarily the right word for it because it doesn't really have anything in common with anything that has been tried with communism in the past. It's really more of a idea about how the utopian goals of it, namely, you know, everybody's needs are met and, you know, uh, that you know, workers, you know, have, you know, some degree of rights and ownership over their, the means of production and, and so on. Like, that's really like the main part that it has in common with it. But what we really have are ideas about uh, how Urbit can contribute to this sort of idea. Um, Andy? Re- well, real communism has not been tried. Yes, yeah, just like real capitalism hasn't been tried, real libertarianism, and then like real, real anything hasn't really been tried. Um, so the uh, the 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 negative electron of um, political theory. Mm-hmm. The um, uh, so so and was she keyed into Urbit before, or did you introduce the topic, or how, how did that come up as an area of inquiry? Uh, yeah, so I, I've just talked with her. I've known her for about 10 years now, and, uh, we've talked on and off about, uh, uh, I, I, I've been interested in cryptocurrency in general since, like, you know, Bitcoin was the only game in town. And, uh, so, so has she, like, she's followed along with it. And I, before I came to Salon, when I was still in grad school, I spent some time working on a project called Holochain. And, uh, so, and we talked a bit about that in the past. And so it's just kind of a continuing of a conversation that like, that since this is what I ended up working on, and since we knew that, you know, we had sort of, you know, similar kind of, I would say just naive utopian visions for the future, uh, that, uh, um, she got interested in it. And, but basically, uh, so I guess, you know, our idea is like really an anarchist, uh, or anarcho-communist uh, sort of idea of what could be accomplished with Urbit. And um, the basic, I would say, idea that is at the bedrock of this whole thing, um, which I think is something that should appeal to everybody and make sense, uh, is 
the is ideas about uh, how do systems consisting of independent agents that you know communicate with each other by some way and are able to modify their own behavior over time, uh, which is sometimes called like a complex adaptive system. Um, examples being society itself, uh, forests, and you know the the parts of it. Um, the brain is a complex adaptive system to some 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 degree. Uh, that the behavior of a complex adaptive system and what it's capable of is uh, essentially determined by the language which it speaks. Uh, and so there's a paper that was created that has, it's actually never been finished, but it was uh, the people that uh, worked on are, are building the hollow chain and scepter projects that I used to work on uh, about something, a notion called grammatic capacities. And the idea of a grammatic capacity is it's essentially like a sort of language that a com complex adaptive system can speak. And when it starts speaking it, then what it's capable of is upgraded, is upgraded. So taking society as an example, the invention of speech uh, allowed, um, humans to accomplish new things. The invention of writing then allowed uh, a lot of like time binding on our knowledge in the sense that, you know, things don't have to be, you know, given uh, or knowledge doesn't have to be transferred just orally. Now it can be written down. So a lot of our knowledge gets to be like uh, passed down over time. So that increased the ability of what humans are capable of doing. Um, later on, the invention of currency is an event example of another grammatic capacity. Once we had currency, then, you know, commerce uh, was created and that, you know, again, enhanced our, our uh, uh, what the humans were able to do overall with society. Uh, later on, the printing press, uh, you know, now that we can, you know, mass produce information, that's uh, another way in which information gets spread uh, among in, in the, you know, the system, the complex adaptive system. Um, later on, the invention of the Internet would be another example of a grammatic capacity uh, in that, uh, you know, it allowed us to do things like, uh, you know, the sharing economy with like Uber and, um, and so forth. And the general idea is that, uh, we need to have, or what ought to exist and which doesn't really yet is a sort of, uh, theory of grammatic capacities and how we create them. And, but in, in the short term that what we want to do is, uh, we think that currency as it is right now is as, you know, basically scalar value, a scalar valued thing that we trade to, you know, basically make sense about the world that, you know, and, and also creates incentives to do various things. So, um, so you have, you know, uh, uh, you know, if you're offered, if you're paid to do something, then, um, you know, that allows, gives you some degree of freedom. You can do, do other things, but, uh, the, uh, I think there's something missing from the notion of currency in that it doesn't necessarily contain all the information necessary for the system which utilizes it to make intelligent decisions about it about itself. So another example of like a, a complex adaptive system would be like things like ant colonies or bee colonies, um, and they uh, they have their own languages that they use to communicate amongst themselves that allows them to do things like uh, even though each individual is very dumb. Uh, there's a collective intelligence that overall is displayed by like the colony. And uh, basically 
you know, the invisible hand of the market, as it, you know, is often called, uh, does do a lot of very intelligent things. And in capitalism, you know, we can just look all around us and see like all the things that capitalism has created um, that essentially, you know, wasn't, you know, put in from any top down, like person deciding, okay, this is what we need to do as a society, um, but rather the incentive system and uh, information content that's encoded in currency itself uh, is able to motivate that sort of thing. However, you know, it misses out on some things like, uh, it seems a bit blind to things like climate change. Um, it also, you know, seems to have uh, some other, you know, disadvantages about like, you know, wealth inequality and so on. And my basic idea is that the notion of currency itself uh, can have more information content in it. And that, you know, a lot of these problems like are like basically uh, the collective intelligence of like, you know, the hand of the market uh, is basically can be upgraded by uh, introducing more sophisticated forms of currency. And I think things like decentralized finance, where we have like now we have programmable money that can be composed and like, you know, some people call it like money Legos uh, is a, a, a very early form of this. Um, and the thing that I'm most inspired by in this context is our uh, multicellular organisms, uh, so your body, you know, consists of trillions of cells and for the most part, your cells just talk to their neighbors and, um, there's not really, there's not no CEO cell in charge of your entire body. It's just neighbors talking to neighbors, but they have a very sophisticated language. They talk to each other. It's the biomolecular language, you know, hormones and, uh, ATP and, uh, RNA, all these things these are very sophisticated languages that, you know, uh, it's made out of chemistry and it's composable in the sense that, you know, different molecules can compose into, you know, into bigger molecules and so on. You can go on and keep going and build like large proteins, which themselves are like machines. Um, and I think that like things like cryptocurrency and especially like decentralized finance are a very uh, early version of that, that it you can sort of think of it in terms of like a, uh, a biomolecular language uh analogous to what, you know, multicellular organisms speak so that you can have trillions of cells coordinate with each other so that the whole acts in its own interest, even though it's only neighbors talking to neighbors. And so our general idea is that Urbit is a good platform to implement um, these sorts of more sophisticated notions of information sharing uh, that are analogous to currency, but are actually in some ways like uh, above it in that uh, currency becomes like a the currency that we have right now, which is just, you know, they're all scalar value. They're just, um, you know, it's, uh, it's, it's, it's just some number rather than, you know, a uh, more complicated sort of information uh, construct. Like, uh, um, I know, I, I don't know how mathematical I want to get here. So, uh, but I was, but I'll, I'll let you guys comment <laughs> from here. How, how does how does the hierarchical nature of of uh, the urban network sort of fit into this idea? Because um, it seems to me uh, that you're talking about um, uh, a lot of a lot of uh, of agents working together on in in sort of a, a flat way. But does this how do you account for for the hierarchical nature of the network? Right. So, um, Urbit's hierarchical nature is, you know, at the end of the day, it's just a, uh, routing system. It's, uh, you know, a fancy collection of phone books. 
Um, Galaxy is, you know, having the biggest phone books, and then Star is having, you know, slightly smaller ones. And it's, um, this is just a mathematical necessity for uh, efficient routing, um, that if you want to have the fastest connection from peer to peer, uh, or rather, really, it's just peer discovery, like actually, like, you know, Galaxies and Star's, uh, you know, if they have to do NAT traversal, then they do actually do routing. But ordinarily, all they do is just tell you their, your peer's IP address, and then it's all, you know, peer-to-peer from there. Um, you know, they it's just the correct mathematical solution to quick uh, packet uh, or peer discovery. Um, but uh, it's also, in some sense, uh, optional. It's the first one, and I think it's the most sensible first routing system to have on Urbit because, because it is the fastest. Um but it's uh, also uh, totally possible to come up with alternative uh, routing systems that, you know, would not depend on galaxies and stars. You could just imagine a bunch of planets and, you know, planets themselves just sort of acting like, you know, taking those roles like dynamically. Um, and uh, so in that sense, I, you know, I don't think that the... Uh, I'm not talking in general about like the destruction of all hierarchy in general. I think that... Uh, there are situations where hierarchy makes sense and is good and situations where it doesn't work as well. And I think in our current world that, uh, the main problem that I see with like hierarchical government structures and, and organizational structures in general is that our world is becoming increasingly complex at a very rapid rate and that the more complex our world gets, the more intelligent the agents at the top of the hierarchy need to be in order to handle that complexity. Um, but I don't think humans, you know, there is some cap to how, how intelligent humans can be and that this complexity will eventually overwhelm the, this cap of intelligence necessary for a a hierarchical system to work effectively. And at that point, I think is when you need to start harnessing collective intelligence powers. And I think things like ant and bee colonies, which, whose agents are about as dumb as you can imagine, but their communication system is extremely sophisticated, uh, are able to like actually, uh, work very effectively. And so I think that, uh, and to some extent, you know, we already do this as humans. This is what currency does. It it enhances our own collective intelligence, allows us to, you know, coordinate at at a level without top down, um, uh, control. Uh, but I'm, you know, saying in general that like we can, enhance that signaling mechanism so that our collective intelligence is enhanced and that this is the actual tool that we need to fight rising complexity and uh, that, you know, if we try to just depend on hierarchical systems for everything um, or, you know, to the extent that we do now, that we will just be overwhelmed by complexity and things will just make less and less sense and we won't be able to correct it, uh, adapt to them effectively. So uh, in this case, you know, I think, yeah, the Urbit... Routing system, that is the correct mathematical solution to having the fastest possible routing for packets or for peer discovery, but, you know, alternative ones can be built. The other thing is that the hierarchical uh, urbit address space, uh, you know, does have a government uh, governance, uh, you know, level to it. Like, galaxies are able to alter the smart contract for uh, the identity system. And um, in this case, it's... Um, I think this is the correct choice to use in the context in which Urbit is currently being created, that the address space is a great bootstrap 
for Urbit in that, you know, it gets people to have uh, skin in the game, people that own address space, you know, want to en enhance Urbit. And this is something that, you know, any other sort of account-based thing like Facebook or whatever, it's like when you have a Facebook account, you know, you, there's no there's no sense in which you feel compelled to contribute to Facebook um, other than to make just Mark Zuckerberg richer. But, you know, you do with something like Urbit. And, but the problem is that, you know, because this is a brand new system that we don't know exactly what the best uh, details to have for a decentralized identity system should be. And so we need to have some sort of way to uh, modify that over time. And so you there's like an idea maze you have to work through uh, to come up with the idea, okay, so we need... We need a way to modify this over time. Well, how do we, you know, want to modify this? And I think there's a lot of ways you could go with, with that. Um, but at the end of the day, uh, the current existing identity system on Urbit, if I'm thinking about like a sort of Urbit maximalist future where like everybody has Urbit and like devices everywhere while you're using Urbit and so forth, um, then I would also imagine a plurality of different identity systems. So it's like your Urbit right now only has, you know, its planet identity but there could be other peer-to-peer -peer networks that it could join that could have their own form of identity that might have their own form of governments and so forth. And, you know, eventually you'll have, you know, your ship will, you know, might eventually just be originally linked to Urbit, but it could have many different identities associated with it. And that, uh, that might not be hierarchical. They might be, you know, ones that are just, you know, generated, uh, on a, on a, as needed basis, um, they might govern a different way. And so basically, you know, this is, I, you know, the hierarchical aspect of it is something that, you know, to me, as, you know, somebody that has these, I don't know, kind of naive utopian views on how uh, society might work someday, that I was unhappy with the address-based system, um, and especially the hierarchical nature of it. But I have eventually came around to understand, okay, this, this, is, this is the correct solution for this moment, and it is the correct solution mathematically for, for, for routing purposes, and that it also does not prevent other solutions from being created in the future. And that, uh, so it's really just, uh, you know, and that will be, you know, something that people can just freely choose to uh, associate or not with in the future. And that's, you know, I think that kind of freedom is what lots of people on Urbit uh, find appealing. How much of your time is spent debating and adjudicating these kinds of philosophical questions and how much on other stuff? Uh, at the moment, uh, not very much. Like I, so like, you know, I consider myself, uh, a leftist in general, like, um, but you know, not only nominally in the sense that I, you know, I don't really believe in any existing institutions. <laughs> um, uh, and, but, you know, Urbit does have like a, a politics problem in general in that, you know, uh, or at least associated with, uh, you know, Neo Reaction and, and Curtis Yarvin and so forth. And so in general, I've had an uphill battle to explain to, you know, my friends like this, like, uh, you know, Urbit doesn't actually have anything to do with feudalism. Um, in fact, you know, if you go back to like the original spec for Urbit, uh, Yarvin, specifically says monarchy is not an acceptable solution in this context. And, um, and, you know, it, and then I think, you know, it's easy to explain to people that, you know, I've thought about just a little bit, you know, it's the current system of the internet that is the fuel system, you know, Mark Zuckerberg and Jack Wendy's and, you know, 
these other people in charge of these megacorp social media networks are actual feudal lords. And, you know, the people when you have an account on them, you're actually their serfs. And, like, Urban is actually an escape from feudalism in the digital sense. Um, and so uh, I've been thinking, you know, for a long time, like, how do I... Because I think Urban is really for everyone. And I, actually, really, everyone at Talon believes this. Like, I am not a black sheep at Talon anyways. I, I'm, I'm not, you know, the, I'm not, you know, the only uh, person with my set of beliefs at Talon... And we're all basically here because we think that, uh, you know, urban is for everyone. It, it you know, it net increases the good in the world and uh, the person's individual politics. Uh, urban gives a, a, a platform where it can manifest without really in- infringing on other people to to uh, a better degree than it does now. And so, um, yeah, so I, I've spent a lot of time at Talon thinking about, like, how can I uh, help Urbit get over this, you know, sort of perception issue with Neo Reaction and so forth that, you know, in my opinion, is really just a distraction and a phantom, a red herring. Um, and I've thought of a few different ways to do this. And uh, the one that has come out for me that I think I am most well suited for is this paper that I started writing last month. That's like, okay, I'm just going to try to spell out with... Uh, somebody who like so Matilda she's she's actually she's a very like much more hardcore like anarcho communist than I am like she's she's written a lot of uh papers in this direction and she's written books about it uh and she uh you know basically is you know much more knowledgeable about the theory and so forth I'm really just the you know the guy who knows the tech um and I'm trying to like pattern match and uh she uh, and so, yeah, I figured out, okay, well, if I can write a paper with her who already has, you know, some clout with this, you know, you know, still rather fringe community, but is about as polar opposite as you can imagine from, uh, from what people usually think about if they don't know about Urbit and they, all they hear is, oh, it's Moldbug's thing. And that must mean it's some digital feudalism thing, blah, blah, blah. You know, I figured so, okay, if I can write a paper with somebody who has, you know, like, uh, Bonafides in a completely opposite political realm, and we make a strong case that Urbit is uh, perfectly well suited for this sort of thing. You know, leaving aside the idea of whether or not it's actually realistic or not. You know, like I said, I'm uh, I, I'm really more of the opinion of shoot for the stars and hopefully hit the moon. I can't necessarily say whether you know luxury gay space communism is really possible or not, um, but just that you know I'm trying to come up with like. Uh, what set of texts would, would be, uh, useful for that. Um, and so that's, uh, so I would say it's only a relatively recent thing that I'm spending much time on this. And that's one reason why I wanted to come on this podcast to talk about it, to also just get it out there that, uh, you know, Urbit is, you know, really has appealing properties for people pretty much across the political spectrum, unless you're an actual, you know, I want to be, you know, a feudal lord thing, in which case the current internet is actually your, your answer for that. Thank you for listening. Please visit us at www.thestack.link or find us on Twitter at thestack.link, all one word. And please remember to like and subscribe on SoundCloud and iTunes. I'm Josh, and with Andy, we are The Stack.